Hello, welcome to the New Stack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at scale application development, deployment, and management. New Relic delivers real time insights that software driven businesses need to innovate faster. New Relic makes every aspect of modern software and infrastructure observable so companies can find and fix problems faster, build high-performing DevOps teams, and speed up transformation projects. Hey, everyone. Alex here for another episode of the New Stack Makers, and today, Ben Evans of New Relic. And Ben is a principal engineer at New Relic and a Java historian, I would almost say. I know that you've worked a lot in the Java space. You probably have studied more Java than most anyone out there. And so, you know, Ben, I just had an opening question for you because I saw you give a presentation last year. And as we well know, container technologies have really been the domain of Go programmers, people who are programming in a Go programming language. But you said that Java is catching up and closing the gap in this presentation that I saw. And I've been thinking about that a lot. I just wondered if you could give me your perspective on that. Well, well sure. And, and first of all, thank you, Alex, for having me on the show today. Um, it's, uh, it's great to be here. And I'm sure we're going to have a, a, a great conversation. So yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think about containers, they do think about Go. But in, in practice, I think, you know, they are a very general, you know, technology. They're supposed to be. The, the, you know, the analogy with shipping containers is not by accident. You can kind of put anything in them. But I think it, it is fair to say that, that what people have tended to do, at least one use case for them, has been those sort of services which are relatively simple. They start up real quick and potentially, you know, you can spin up a lot of them and have this kind of dynamic pool of, of containers which are responsible for, for providing a capability. So rather than thinking about it specifically from the point of view of a language, you might want to think about, about what the, you know, the characteristics of the, the code that runs inside them is. And I've already mentioned one of the things which I think is, is where there, there was a little bit of a, or historically at least, there's been a bit of a disconnect um, with, with Java. And that's startup time. Because you see a, a Go binary, you know, or I think, you know, these days people would also you know, maybe even think about Rust. They're, they're compiled binaries, or C++ for that matter. They are compiled directly into machine code. So they just start up, and the process, as soon as the operating system forks it and accepts it, it's ready to go. There's no, you know, real warm-up or any other kind of, of reaching a steady state that the, the process has. It's just, it's there, and the code starts executing, which is, which is great if what you really value is that ability to bring up a, a fleet of these things in in very short amount of time. But Java and other managed technologies, including, of course, .NET, comes from a very different view of the world, you know, where, where what Java and .NET care about is sustainable, long-term, steady-state performance. You know, and that's what, that's what managed environments are there to do. They're there to have this, this extra complexity in the runtime, which is capable of, of figuring out where the sweet spot for the currently executing code really is. You know, you can take the same Java program and you can run it on an environment of any size, you know, from a phone all the way up to a big old mainframe. And the, the, the runtime will, will figure out, oh, okay, so we're on a, a, a container or a, an environment, let's say, which has eight cores in it. So what, what it's going to do is it's going to size 
the, the, the built-in thread pools in the VM appropriately. It's going to spin up a number of, of garbage collection threads, which are going to be appropriate for the size of that environment, and JIT compilation threads as well. So it's going to sort of auto-size and dynamically figure out what's best about the environment. So it's a different philosophy, and it's optimized for a sort of environment which is, is different from what people, uh, or at least one use case of, of containers that people have, have optimized for. So that's really the technical gap that, that people have been looking to close, is essentially how do we, you know, in, in its simplest possible terms, how do we get Java to be competitive in terms of finding a steady state and getting, getting up and getting warmed up quickly enough when you know, you're competing with a, a, a Go process start time? So that's that's really the the thing, and I think I think you know good progress is is being made. Um, part of it comes down to the fact that Java has this new release cycle, and that's you know a change in the way that Java is being licensed, being released, so that more releases are coming out. There's now like a release every six months. So new technologies, things like being able to to have um, effectively pre-compiled archives. And what you you hear people in the Java world talk about class data sharing and application class data sharing and app CDS is the word that people use a lot. Uh, and that is is a very new thing that's added, I think just the last release of Java. And it does you know incredible things just to the startup timer processes. So yeah, there's a lot going on in the Java world to to kind of close that gap. It's it's an interesting time for sure. How has open source affected Java? Our discussion today is about open source and telemetry, and I want to use this as an angle to discuss. How, how has open source changed uh, Java? Okay, well, to do this, you, know, you, you mentioned that I'm a bit of a Java historian, and so I'm going to, going to take a bit, of a bit of a historical long lens here, and we're going to go way back into the past, you know, 14 years uh, to 2006. And at that time was, was kind of a milestone point where, where Sun finally released the last bits of, of code needed to build a completely open implementation of Java. Until then, Java had been kind of sort of open source. You know, there were, you know, there were bits which were, were, were free and open source, there were bits which weren't, there were bits where you could see the source code but you couldn't alter it. It wasn't, you know, a, a unified approach to open source. Uh, and in 2006 is when, is when Sun first uh, actually released all the components to let people do that. And that from there, it was actually quite a, a few years before before a fully open source version of Java was built. But when Oracle bought Sun Microsystems in 2010, um, they they were were very keen on making sure that that future versions of Java were based on the open source code line. So although Oracle have continued to release proprietary versions of Java, and it's something that people don't always think about when you go to the Oracle website and download Java what you're actually downloading is a proprietary binary. It's not actually open source, or at least it wasn't until recently. But the, the, those releases are based on the open source code base. Uh, it's just a weird quirk of Java that when you, when you contribute to, to Java as an open source developer, you sign a, an agreement with Oracle which says that they can not only use your contribution as open source, but they can also relicense it into their proprietary code base as well. So there has been this... this uh, this sort of slight mystique, I guess, around open source and Java. And a lot of people haven't realized that, that from Java 7 onwards, which, you know, is a long time ago now, it's, what is that, is that eight, eight nine years ago? All of the releases of Java that have come out have actually been based on OpenJDK, which is the, the reference implementation, which is, is open source. So Java, I think because it's always been associated with enterprise development, it's always been a language which you know it, you know it doesn't quite have the same sort of freewheeling style somehow that a python or a ruby has it has this slightly more professional slightly more starched shirt image 
for some reason that people don't associate it with open source as much. But in fact, it is. You know, it's the the, the core VM and the core runtime is built on open source technology and has been for a very long time. Uh, and the community around it, of course, has always strongly relied upon open source. So it's it's kind of fascinating to me as a, a bit of a of a student of the history of computing. As a student of the history of computing, now we see the uh, evolution of popular technologies such as service mesh, and service mesh is a technology that really requires observability in, in many ways. And uh, you're part of the open telemetry group that has started to really uh, find ways to think more about how you do observability. And so I'm curious about Java and its role in, in, in open telemetry and how it is being used in comparison to other languages. And one of the complexities that seems to be with the Open Telemetry Group is the number of programming languages that it supports. And so I'm, I'm just curious about the open source project itself and telemetry and how the Java fits with that, just because I know your background and you might be able to provide some perspective there. Sure, I'd love to. So, but first of all, I want to put a slightly different spin on it. And I want to think about Open Telemetry as a project. I think it's an expression of a a mood and a trend which is in the market rather than you know so, so it's not that the project has somehow captured people's hearts and minds and and the project is so amazing i mean there is some great work being done there are some great people in it but i think it's more about the open telemetry being an expression of an idea whose time has come the idea of of an open standard for telemetry and an open observability set of standards I think is going to become increasingly important. And the reason why, I think you've already mentioned, it's because you said, you know, there are all these programming languages. And that's really key, to my mind, to understanding what's going on and why people are excited about OpenTelemetry and, and other things like Prometheus. Software is getting more complicated. That has been true for a long time now. And it's one of the major trends that I see in software, which shows no, no signs of going away. There are more programming languages. There are more frameworks. There is more complexity. There is more diversity in software. And so what that means is that if there is going to be a solution for observability, well, by definition, if it's going to be effective, it has to cover and deal with all that range and all that diversity of software that's out there. So that has an interesting effect. If you are a proprietary company who are doing observability, you have to provide coverage on all of those languages, all of those frameworks, all of those things which your customers want to use. So that is an extraordinary amount of investment that you're having to provide as proprietary software. Whereas if there is a, an open source common core, what I sometimes call an open source substrate for observability, which everyone draws from and everyone contributes to, but where your differentiating features and your competitive advantage are not in that layer, but above it. That effectively the instrumentation and the, the, the lowest level has become an open source core. And in doing so has become commoditized. That that is what is really driving the production of open telemetry. Because now, you know, New Relic don't need to cover all of the technologies by themselves. You know, and a, a, a proprietary company doesn't need their own version of everything because you're collaborating on something. And the, vi the value has migrated up the stack. So that is, if, if you've been around computing for a while, you, you will know is a, a classic migration of value story that we've seen so many times in internet-based computing over the last 20 years. 
Now, Nurelic has proprietary middleware. I think you've described it as middleware. And so would you, how do you then balance that with uh, open telemetry? And is that then open telemetry further up the stack and then you use that technology through your own middleware uh, software? So, so what's happened is uh, around about a year ago, just under a year, there was a, we, we reached kind of a fork in the road. And what we, what we decided to do was that we would open source all of our instrumentation components. And, and what that means is those are the components that, that are installed onto customers' servers. They are all the bits of our software that, that integrate and touch directly our customer software. We have open sourced all of that as they stood you know, with all of the proprietary software and all of the IP. Um, one of our folks calculated that it was something like, I think the figure mentioned was $600 million of intellectual property that we open source and have contributed to the community. Um, I'm not quite sure how that estimate was arrived at, but in terms of the, the amount of, of, of effort of the engineers and just some of the cool software that's there, that's a, that's, a, that's a remarkable achievement. So we have that. It's there. It's all on GitHub. If you go to github.com slash relic, you will find source code for all of our instrumentation components that we deploy today. Open telemetry is our future direction. It is where we are heading to. And we, we feel that, that that is, you know, that's part of our, uh, our journey towards open standards and towards the commodification uh, and the you know, that 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 new world of having an open source substrate. So that that's part of our our, our future strategy. Now you might ask the question, okay, so what do, does New Relic have that's still proprietary? And the the answer is, like a lot of people who do also do open source um, observability, we have some back end services that process the data. Now that's proprietary, or at least it's not it's not open source because it's not particularly secret and there are components in there that we may actually wish to open source over time but in order to deploy this stuff and for it to be any use you kind of need to build an engineering plan and a production plan on the scale of new relic and you know you need to do things like you need to have kubernetes you need to have our continuous integration and our continuous deployment pipelines and so many other components that it's actually hard to just open source the services because they don't really make sense in context you know, I can describe the architecture very simply. There is, you know, a, a set of, of RESTful endpoints that take the data in various formats and slice and dice it and turn it into uh, a set of messages which are, are fed onto a very large uh, Kafka installation. And we actually have, I believe, one of the largest uh, installations of Apache Kafka in the world. Uh, certainly the folks at Confluent are always, always happy to come talk to us. Um, <laughs> and... And, and that, that basically just turns it into this, this sort of um, series of, of events where we have things listening, subscribing to Kafka topics, and to transform that and to place those events after they have been enriched and modified into what we call NRDB, which is a, a very horizontally scalable database, which, which we've built, which is, is I think, one of our, our real crown jewels. And that I think is probably the one component that we're still trying to decide if we can uh, possibly get that open sourced as well. Because I think that, that if we could separate that out, there is actually some, some useful stuff that, that, that we, could, we could share with the community there. So of the parts which are, are proprietary now, it's not because we, you know, we feel like there is, there is something particularly you know, that we're trying to guard and keep secret. It's, it's just about the, you know, whether or not you can, you know, anyone else would extract value from, from having the code to look at without being wanting to stand up 
a, a plant the size of the, the new relic data centers and AWS components. Because that's that's part of the thing, right? I mean, this is this is this is the, essentially the value proposition for for a company like New Relic is our customers are smart people. Could they build their own observability and monitoring plants? Well, in many cases, of course they could. But do they want to? Is it core to the business the the, the value proposition of their business? Because if you build your own monitoring and observability, by definition, you've just added a, a tier one critical production system because it's the thing that monitors the rest of your stuff. And if it's the thing that monitors the rest of your stuff, it had pretty much better stay up. So now you need a support team for it, you need on-call, you need developers, you, you know, the whole infrastructure, not just technical, but also the project and um, human infrastructure that's required to support a production-grade observability and monitoring plant is, is extremely significant for larger companies. So the new Relic proposition is, hey, how about you don't do that? And instead, you send your data to us, and we will provide you with open source components, which you can insert into your software, send it to our plant, and, and we will take care of the, the hard part of running the monitoring and observability plant for you. So how has that meant a change in your engineering organization, and, and how your teams work, and who the people you have on your teams, and, you know, and how they contribute back to the open source community? Uh, that's a great question. And, and the answer is, is that's, that's been one of the real challenges. It's certainly been an interesting thing um, for me personally, because, you know, I, I've been working in open source, you know, for, for 20 plus years. I first started running Linux in 95. And this is, this, I think, the first time in my career where I've, I've seen an organization the size of New Relic uh, actually um, change direction and in a very, very short amount of time. And I think we did it. The, the, from start to finish, having the executives make the decision that yes, we were going to do this, we were going to open source all of the instrumentation to having everything open was you know door to door, no more than seven months. Now, seven months is not a lot of time to bring an entire engineering organization and change the culture and change, you know explain to, to, to people this new way that, that they need to be working and to really you turn that ship. You know, it, it's like a container ship, it's a big thing. And it doesn't have a tight turning circle. You just have to kind of understand and it, it, you know, be, be uh, realistic about the fact that it's going to take a little while for the ship to turn. So, you know, just, just for example, we, we have developers, very, very smart people, who've never really worked in the open before. So they don't really understand what's different about the proprietary behind the firewall development versus working in the open. Um, you know, we also have questions for, for, for managers who are used to being able to produce a roadmap of features and saying, okay, we're going to do these things. And, and to do that purely as a proprietary exercise. Whereas, you know, we're starting to, to, to see, especially as we look towards open telemetry, which it's kind of like, there's been a ratcheting, you know, to go from proprietary to open source, but still on an, an, an agent, um, which, which is, is fundamentally our code. And we are getting some great contributions from the community. But the, the proportion of, um, of code that, 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 that we wrote versus what's being written by the community, you know, those, those proportions are on, on in no way equal. And as we start contributing more and more to open telemetry, and as we start to ship products which are based on open telemetry, you know, I think it's going to be, it's going to be very different again, because that, then that moves us into an environment where instead of it being our project, which is open and which we're accepting contributions into from anyone who wants to give them, we're going to go into a, a project, a, a phase where we're, we are working, collaborating 
but at the same time also competing with some of the other people on the open source project and where that project is really truly owned by the community as a whole and not by any particular vendor. So there's really three stages in the evolution here from the purely proprietary to the owned but open source through and into the, the true community managed model. So it's, it's a lot of evolution for developers, for managers, and, and, and for execs as well. So you described Open Telemetry Group really as an expression of a movement, an expression of an idea uh, that time has come. When you're talking about movements, they're incredibly complex. Uh, they can, you know, they, they, they have their different people who are involved, the different communities who are involved. I'm wondering how uh, New Relic is approaching this and what is it you're emphasizing because you can't do everything. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's true. So I think there are, are really, you know, there's a, a couple of guiding principles that, we, that we've adopted. First of all, is we open our own agents. And I think we'll bring those, those principles and values to, to bear as, we, as we, we, we take on more and more engineering commitment to open telemetry. So the first of those is, is, is what I call open by default. And that principle is the idea that unless there is a really, really good reason why something has to be kept private and, and done behind closed doors, we do it in the open. So, you know, there are, I have in the past encountered open source projects which did not follow that philosophy, where, okay, they, there was a, an open repo and you could download the code and the code was even under an open source license, but you could not realistically contribute back to it. And instead, a small number of core contributors did work behind closed doors and then dumped a bunch of code into the open every six months. And that is not really an open source community because there's no possibility for, for someone who is outside the inner circle to make meaningful contributions. What's an, what's an example of that? I, I think of Android code. I think of uh, you know large organizations who have come out with open source releases. But is the Android code an example of that? Uh, it certainly was historically. Yeah. I, I think that that's that's a, that is that is true. I I haven't been keeping up with the Android world in in recent years, so so I I would I would hesitate to say whether that was still true today or not. I um, think in our in our space historically, the one that I think of is Docker. When they uh, when it was 2016, I think with Docker Swarm, and they dumped all the code out right at their DockerCon event, and that kind of then led to the movement for the Kubernetes to really gain its its, its space in the market. Yes, absolutely, and I think you've highlighted one of the one of the problems with that that style of open source is that you know I always think that there's a lot of tension, especially around open source, or, or maybe it's it's more that the the characteristics of open source heighten this about whether a technology in a specific market has first mover or second mover advantage. And mm -hmm. in the case of, of Docker versus Kubernetes, I think that it's, it's becoming clearer that perhaps the real benefit in that market was the second mover advantage. Mm -hmm. having, having Docker out there to go and, and, and get people used to the idea of containers uh, and then enabling Kubernetes to come in. Uh, or, or another example would be the big data space where having Hadoop out there really made you know, people start thinking about big data but then the second generation platforms which came along, like Apache Spark uh, and other things which had real true streaming big data capability, actually turned out to be a, a much better fit for most people's actual, actual wants and needs. So that style of open source, the, 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 the one which isn't open by default, 
the throw it over the wall style, if you like. We right. definitely decided we did not want to do that. We wanted to be open by default. And that meant, you know, even if that meant a, you know, a significant amount of change in our processes and how we made decisions. Because when you're open by default, you actually have to, to, to recognize that you, you were inviting people in, not just to the coding, but also to the, the decisions which govern the, the project in its direction. And that's, that's a key thing. Well, what's your second principle? Go where the engineers are. So that is, is, is vitally important. So again, I've, and I've seen, I've seen companies try to do this wrong. I've seen them sort of open their code and just think, well, okay, it's open now. And, you know, people are going to flock to come and play with our open source code. And it, it just doesn't work like that. Um, you have to work really hard to bring people to your communities. If you're going to found and run an open source community, which is based upon your previously proprietary code base, that is a, a, a hell of a job to get that to get that running and to maintain it. So rather than rather than do that, I mean, our, our agents are all open. We are getting some good contributions. We are getting some some issues, some pull requests, and some real engagement from customers. Um, but we're under no illusions. The real drive and the real thrust of the community is towards projects like OpenTelemetry. So rather than trying to to to, to you know cause friction and waste energy trying to drag people into the, the new relic open source community, we will go where the engineers are. And, and we think that we can we can see that that clear direction in the market. And that is where we're going to spend our effort. So technically and, with so technically within the open telemetry group, where are the engineers going? Well that, that's that's what I'm saying. The, the engineers in general are going Towards open telemetry but as what, a solution. But what are they looking at once they get there? What are you know? What is their interest once they get into the group? Well, and, and remember, it's a it's a huge group. You know, That's, there are there are yeah. vertically aligned pieces with every technology. So you know, you have your your Java folks, you have your .NET folks, you have your Python folks. All of those, you know, are going to have um, their own take on, on on what is important for that specific language community. But at the same time, you also need to have standards which are cross-cutting and which, which enable the different, the different artifacts and the different pieces of technical work to actually look like each other. You know, you can't produce something like OpenTelemetry where you have totally different solutions which look nothing like each other in the different language stacks. So there needs to be some consistency. And this is where it starts to look a lot more like standards work, um, which is, again, is, is an interesting thing because not too many developers are interested in technical standards production. Now, it's something that I've done at various times in my career, and I, I know that a lot of developers find it really, really boring. But at the same time, it is necessary to, to produce a standard which is well-architected um, and which is going to stand the test of time. Because that's, that's the other thing. Uh, open telemetry is where people are heading for right now. And I think that the signs are good, uh, that it's going to be a good standard, and the people are going to be going to be happy to use it, and it's going to be a sound basis for hopefully many years to come. But if if we do a bad job of it, the community as a whole, what we will end up with is a, with a standard that people just won't use, and something else will come along and replace it. You know, we see this again and again. The the, his, the history of computing contains lots of of technologies that people thought were going to be the you know the winners. You know, I think back to the days of when everyone thought web services were going to be the huge thing. And you know you were going to have the, the the Microsoft Metro stack versus the Sun Java um, Jax WS standards, and the, just the the over overriding complexity, the amount of, of time and effort that was invested in that, 
And ultimately it didn't win because it was over complex. Um, and instead something that was much more straightforward and much easier for developers to understand, and that would be REST, ended up winning out. So that's that's the balance which I think we've got to strike in OpenTelemetry. It's got to be descriptive. Well, first of all, it's got to be fit for purpose. It's got to actually provide the right information to allow people to do observability and monitoring. It's got to be both similar and consistent enough across the different languages and text stacks that it's recognizable so, so that Java doesn't look completely different to .NET, for example. Uh, but at the same time, it needs to not be so generic that the, the specific things that you care about, which are different about a language uh, stack, are, are, are not hidden from view. You know, you can't, you know, sometimes if you push things into too generic a container, you know, you end up losing vital information. For something like observability, that's a killer. So it's not an easy architectural ask. And I think that you know, that's why you need so many people focused on an effort like this, um, because you need folks at different levels. You need, you need the folks who are doing the, making sure the standard is sufficiently consistent across it. And they need to be experienced people who've done standards development before and also have domain experience of, of, of uh, monitoring and observability. You need to have deep technical experts. If you're writing a bytecode weaver in .NET or, or Java, it needs to, to, you know, the folks who've done that need to have done that before and need to actually know what the trade-offs are when writing those things. So yeah. that seems to be a real focus for you is over the next five years in an open telemetry's evolution is that is that standardization. Well, absolutely. I mean, at the moment, we're, we're looking towards getting a 1.0, like a first GA for open telemetry. How, how close are you to that? Well, I think it, it depends because this is, this is, you know, one of the other challenges is that, um, I still feel that, that open telemetry is, is not um, as fully well-staffed as it could be. You know, I think there is still a, a resources gap. And at, at New Relic, it's something we are very much talking about, is how can we bring more of our engineers, more of our uh, resources, more of our experience, frankly, to bear. Um, because we want to we show up, we want to go where the engineers are, and our third principle is do the work. You know, sometimes people come in and they're, they're, they're into a fairly new into a space, which I think New Relic, we are fairly new to this because we we have just pivoted away from from proprietary software, but we do have a lot of domain experience. So we think that the best thing to do is to just come in and engage, find our, our developers and, and get them actually working on the technical problems that are there to be solved, but then also see if our PMs uh, and other managers, if there are other ways that we could contribute. So so if we can can do something to, to help speed up the, the progress towards GA, then I think that will be fantastic. But there are still some some roadblocks. I mean, one which was resolved quite recently is just a question about, and it's one from the Java space. What version of Java do you make the standard depend upon? Mm. Yeah. So, as you probably know, the, the the biggest release of Java that's out there right now is Java eight, and and it's actually six years old now. It's been out for quite a while. Um, but some of the people that are involved in the technical communities were, well, what about Java seven? We still have some customers on Java seven, and maybe we should support that. And there's there's a tension in that. There are there are different competing concerns that have to be resolved. And of course, there are technical arguments and some very good points on both sides. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, the community has to reach a consensus. And that is one area where I think that, that people who are used to proprietary software and, and working inside a single company may, may struggle with that. Because at the end of the day, if you if you do that within a within a company with a big boss, if big boss says the decision is X, the decision is X. And there's not, you know, a lot which you know, you you, you do. You just you if, even if you disagree, you disagree and commit, and you go and implement X. 
But when the, the community uh, is based upon consensus rules and there are you know, competing concerns, then it's actually potentially a lot harder to reach, reach consensus. How close are you to reaching consensus then, do you think? Well, I think on that particular point, it was solved, I guess, a, a month or two back. Um, but it's just one example of the sort of technical issues which individual, individual working groups will, will, will find themselves facing. What were um, some of the differences in the, you know, as you're coming, as you're kind of reaching that point of a month or two ago? Well, it's things like, I mean, it, I mean in, this, in this specific uh, issue, it really just does boil down to, do you, do you want to, to, to deal with the small percentage of people who are still on that old version? Mm. And, you know, and to be clear, it's been end of life for four and a half years. Okay. So it's only the, like the, the slowest moving people. And then you, you, know, you can ask the question, we're talking about a brand new technology standard here. And yet we're trying to debate whether it should be, be supporting uh, a Java runtime, which has been end of life for four and a half years. How many people are there that were on a four and a half year old runtime that still want to use the latest and greatest 1.0 GA open telemetry library, you know? So that's, that's kind of how you make the decision. But at, at the same time, you know, those kind of questions and the implications of them, how much technical debt are we taking on? Um, what, what do we want to do, you know, in, in terms of, um, well, I mean, another example would be automatic instrumentation. Do we want to have a, a library where if you want to use it, you have to explicitly say, I want to instrument at these points. Or do you want something which can kind of just take your code and, and weave it and figure out where the, where the points are for instrumentation automatically? Again, there are competing trade-offs. On the one hand, the, the, the manual instrumentation is a lot less heavyweight because you have to opt in and you are aware and, and conscious of everything that, you are, that you're doing. Um, but it then requires you to go all the way through your code and find all those places where you want to make uh, instrumentation calls. And what happens if you give it to one of your junior developers who doesn't understand what the important ones are? You could end up with far too many or not enough. So there are plenty of, of organizations who would want to do that in a more automated way and not to rely on, on manual instrumentation. So then you have the question about, okay, well, maybe the answer is you ship the manual instrumentation by, uh, by default, and then you make automatic instrumentation a separate plugin mm. or a separate project altogether. And you can opt in to it, but you don't have to take it as part of the um, the, the core deliverable. So uh, finishing up with that, you know, about New Relic and you said they've been a lot of work in, in helping think through where you put your resources. And you also mentioned that the Open Telemetry Group is short staffed to some extent. There's work that needs to be done. You talked about chopping wood, carrying water, essentially doing the hard work. Give us a picture of, you know, the groups, you know, the open source uh, projects that you're involved in outside of the uh, Open Telemetry Group, and you know, and how you're thinking about aligning your resources so you can, you know, go where the engineers are going, as you said earlier. Okay, um, so one very good example is uh, it's in the Java space because that's that's where I spend so much of my time. Yeah. Um, is a project called Adopt Open JDK, hmm. and this this is a project that I actually actually helped start a long time ago. But it's, it's really changed form a lot since I was originally involved with it. Uh, and what it's become over time, it, it started off as a build and test infrastructure-based project. But what it's, it's become is it's become a, a way of building the OpenJDK source code into binaries. So it's a community-run, uh, effectively, project to build OpenJDK binaries, completely from source, 
and then to apply a whole bunch of test cases to them. So it's, it's kind of interesting because it's run by a consortium of companies. So it has some folks from IBM, uh, some folks from Microsoft, and uh, from, from various other companies as well, uh, including now New Relic. Because what we noticed, well, it, it was two parts. Um, it was first of all, realizing that with the changes in Java's licensing model, we would need to, to choose an open JDK distribution uh, of our own that we would, we would run internally at New Relic. And I'm a great believer in what I, what I might call happy path standardization. You know, I don't like telling development teams, you will go and use this combination of technologies. But instead, I would much prefer to say, here is you know, a set of possible choices, and these are first class supported for you. So if you choose one of these things, you get all of this stuff for free, and your life is easier and happier as a developer if you stick within one of the happy paths. Now, if you really want to go off and do something completely wacky and outside of that, well, okay but we will hold you accountable for your choices. Whereas if you come to the happy path, you know, you know that you're good. So as part of that, we wanted to choose a distribution of OpenJDK. And for folks who aren't too familiar with how the licensing model for Java has changed recently, you know, the way to think about these OpenJDK distributions is they're really kind of a bit like Linux distributions. You know, so they all run the Linux kernel and they all kind of are Linux, but there's just a, a few subtle differences between them, which most of the time, it doesn't matter. You know, um, for most shops, whether you're a Debian-based Linux shop or a Red Hat-based or a Suzy-based shop, you know, it, it doesn't matter all that much. You know, you need to be a little conscious of, the, of the, the, the small differences, but in the end of the day, it's all Linux. And that's kind of how it is with OpenJDK. It's all just Java, really. Um, and so for, 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 for New Relic, what our choice was, was uh, adopt OpenJDK. And we made that decision simply because we could tell from our customer data that for those customers that were moving away from Oracle, that was where they were going. So we, we actually analyzed our customer data, chose adopt OpenJDK for our, ourselves, for our own use, and then thought, okay, well, this, this project is rapidly becoming the largest supplier of, of Java technology, of JDKs, after Oracle, and it's where our customers are going. So maybe we should make a strategic investment of time and money and actually get more involved. So that's been pretty successful, really. Uh, we've been able to help out partners with that. We're, we're doing the, you know, to making sure that we're engaged where our customers are engaged. And it was just announced, I think just a, a couple of months ago, that the Adopt OpenJDK project is actually moving to the Eclipse Foundation. Yeah. So, so it's actually going to be it's going to be rolled up and it's going to be called the current working title is Eclipse Adoptium. Um, and so that's been, that's been great to see. And we've been, hopefully we're going to be get, getting uh, even more involved and spending more time working within the Eclipse Foundation and, and helping to, to promote Adoptium. Well, Ben, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. And I feel like we could talk about the history of Java for another few hours at least, but I want to, say that I'm happy to see New Relic uh, making such uh, efforts to be a real open source organization. I know the uh, transition is a lot of work, uh, but it must be a lot of fun too. So thank you for your time. Alex, thanks. It's great to be on. And it's, yeah, it's, it's been a, a really interesting year and I'm, I'm really pleased with where we are and I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next. Thanks again. Thanks again.
Listen to more episodes of the Newstack Makers at thenewstack.io slash podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes, like us on YouTube, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and see you next time. New Relic delivers real-time insights that software-driven businesses need to innovate faster. New Relic makes every aspect of modern software and infrastructure observable so companies can find and fix problems faster, build high-performing DevOps teams, and speed up transformation projects.